Welcome back. It's another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line, talking to the movers and shakers of the TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, producers, costume designers, composers, uh, production designers, uh, sound editors, sound mixers, um, film editors, um, you name it, and we talk to them. And I'm very excited. Today, it's all about the word on the page. Today's show, last week was a show of James's with the wonderful James Grixoni and our pre-record, my pre-recorded interview with James Darcy talking about Made in Italy. This week, we have... Both of our interviews today are pre-recorded um, during a frenzied day last week where I did eight in- lengthy interviews in one day and, and screened three films. Uh, but both of these films came out on Friday. So what better time for you to hear these interviews and to follow and to, you know, create our theme of the screenwriter. And two completely different approaches to screenwriting here. We've got, first up, you're going to hear Carolyn Goodall talking about the Bay of Silence. Um, Most of you know Carolyn from her years in front of the camera, but this is her first screenplay. Uh, After all of her great performances uh, in films like Princess Diaries, yes, she played Mia Thermopolis' mom in Princess Diaries. Uh, Cliffhanger, she played opposite Rooker and Michael Rooker and Stallone. In Hook, uh, also The Best of Me with James Marsden, Luke Bracey, and Michelle Monaghan, uh, a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. Most recently in Hunter Killer, uh, playing the President of the United States, uh, opposite Gerard Butler. And then some great series like The White Princess, um, Miss of Avalon, where she played Lady Egrain, uh, Bulletproof, Berlin Station. But through the past three decades, something's always been bubbling with Carolyn. And she has now brought that to fruition with an adaptation of Lisa St. Aubin de Terrain's novel, The Bay of Silence. The book has been around for quite a few decades Uh, and it's also very difficult to find now because after seeing the film and I was unfamiliar with the book I loved the film so much that I had to I went on an immediate search to find the book and order it and I'm still waiting for it to arrive I did find it Um, so I can't wait to read it especially after talking with Carolyn and finding out some of the changes that she made uh, in the adaptation including a change of perspective. So instead of two voices in the book, we get one in the film, which gives a a unique bent to this story of a man named Will falls madly in love with a woman named Rosalind on the Bay of Silence in Italy. Uh, And they get married. Everything is lovely. Uh, She has two children from a prior twins from a prior relationship. Uh, She's, getting ready to give birth, there's an accident, and then the past comes creeping up. Um, It doesn't take too long before something is obviously wrong with Rosalind and things go askew. 
I don't want to say too much for those of you that haven't seen the film yet, but it is gripping. And so much of that, not only due to the incredible performances by Clace Bang and Olga uh, Kirilenko and Brian Cox, but due to this script and also to Paula Vanderost's wonderful direction. Uh, and I have to say, Guido Van Genup's cinematography is gorgeous. And then huge shout out for production designer uh, Harry Amerlane, whose work really comes to fruition in the third act of the film with an incredible design in the room of a very opulent home. Uh, that plays so beautifully with metaphor and into the story and the action that occurs in that third act as things come to their ultimate uh, climax. Carolyn, she's done an amazing job with this adaptation. And in our interview, we cover everything, including how her history, how her years as an actress um, came into play in pushing her towards writing. It's also because of her years as an actor. That's how she got Brian Cox to come on board uh, on the film. And you hear a lot from Carolyn uh, about the connections, the personal connections that help get things done. We're going to get to her in just a minute. But right after our interview with Carolyn, you're going to hear from Matson Tomlin. Yes, I know some of you fanboys out there, you're going, ooh, ooh, the Batman, the Batman. No spoilers for the Batman. Um, Matson could not give any Batman spoilers. But we spend plenty of time talking about Project Power, brand new film on Netflix starring Jamie Foxx, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who was on a roll this year, uh, and Dominique Fishback. Um, It is a fun film. It is one of those films you just sit back and enjoy the ride. But there's a lot of great messaging in the film. Matson is a relatively new screenwriter. But here, you're going to hear from Carolyn about adapting a book for the screen. Matson is going to talk about coming up with original ideas. And in the case of Project Power, how his ideas required... An actual, a lot of research. For those of you that have seen the film, the premise is about there's a pill that gives you the power. And, you know, it's a street drug, but it's also got great military and political possibilities, which sets up the stage for maneuvering and purchasing and buying and drug trafficking. Uh, But centered in this one town where you've got Jamie Foxx's character, whose daughter is apparently being experimented on with the drug. You've got Joseph Gordon-Levitt, a police officer who wants to get it off the streets. And you have Dominique Fishback, as <clears throat> who she buys it. She's kind of a go-between for Hit Record Joe's character of Frank. Um, and she she sells him and he utilizes the power sometimes in order to defeat criminals. And the interesting thing about the drug is that whatever power you have within you, it enhances that. Um, so that can be a good or a bad thing. And we see it all play out. 
uh, in the film. But we will get talk more about Madsen uh, shortly. But right now, without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with Carolyn Godall talking about the Bay of Silence. Oh, hi, Debbie Lynn. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. Thank you very much. I just want to tell you thank you because um, Josh very sweetly sent me uh, a kind of early uh, transcript of what you wrote, and I I was blown away. I think you deserve a medal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you. That means so much coming from you. You blew me away with this film with this script my god you what have you been doing saving up all this writing energy and talent all these years oh uh i don't know about that i've been scribbling away for a while but uh you know how it is um uh i think you have to have it takes time um you know it's it's funny, I, I've always written, and actually I remember I was at the National Theatre when I was, uh, you know, in my 20s, and I dated two playwrights simultaneously, so I was obviously vicariously living through them, applauding uh, their success, but uh, actually locking anything I wrote in the bottom drawer of my desk. Um, so yeah, and actually no one knows this, but when I first went to the U.S., I did show a producer's assistant, you know, a woman, mm-hmm. of course, is now a top Hollywood agent, um, and still a friend, a script that I, I, I kind of spec script that I wrote and um, landed a screenplay deal to adapt a book called Dreams of Leaving by Rupert Thompson. And I was actually paid, I was paid $10,000. Wow! <laughs> I was so happy. I was so proud, but the screenplay, of course, was never produced, like 90% of screenplays, but it did give me confidence. And then I remember as I was de- as I was delivering the screenplay, I landed the role of Moira Banning in Hook, mm-hmm. opposite Robin, uh, who of course um, yesterday was the day. Uh, yes, that, the anniversary. Uh, we remember him uh, in memoriam. So um, it always it always you know it always gets to me. But um, and I felt I was just given such a gift of an acting career by Stephen. You know, it made it churlish to try for more. You know, all I wanted was to live up with Gilbert's faith in me. Um, but uh, I think, you know, it was interesting because I, I wrote this and produced this as well, and I kind of had a sense. Um, I actually looked on my IMDb page at how many films and television series I'd done that had been written by women. Uh, this is just recently. Um, and over 30 years, it's six, let me look at it. It's something like six percent. Wow, that's it. Um, so yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, thirteen out of eighty-five feature films and TV shows I have acted in are written by women. Wow, six point five percent across thirty years of working. I mean, that, that's sobering. And, you know, even starring roles I had as a protagonist, like The Sculptress or Difficult Woman or, you know, Hotel Sorrento or uh, Me and Mrs. Jones, all written by men. Mm-hmm. Um, and even TV, you know, showrunners female, uh, Emma Frost, of course, White Queen, White Princess is an inspiring example, you know, but, but the statistics were against me. And, uh, you know, I was making big movies and I thought I'd better concentrate on what brought in the bacon, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but, uh, funny anyway, how you got to pee. Oh, no, I love listening to you. Love listening to this. You know, what I'm curious, out of everything to, you know, debut with, so to speak, and have be made, what was it about Lisa's novel that spoke to you that made you say, I have to adapt this one, this one, this I have to do? Oh, golly. Um, look, the book is beautifully written, and I, I actually read it in the Bay of Silence. Uh, I was taking some time off in between Hook and Cliffhanger. Uh, Cliffhanger was shot in Italy, and uh, you know, my first very short-lived marriage, it was falling apart, and the book deals with a lot of things, and the idea that you can marry someone not really know them resonated. Mm-hmm. Something similar happened to me. I'd, I'd been married a few months. Uh, to my first husband, it was a short-lived marriage, admittedly, and uh, I saw his birthday on his passport. Was three years older than he told me, and he explained it to me. He trimmed it his age for professional reasons. You know, he's an actor, but it stuck, and it weirded me out that it lied and made me doubt my instincts. Um, and so, there's something about this book uh, that really resonated about what happens when you get together and you don't actually know your partner. Um, and uh, the locations in the movie played an important part of my life. I was born and raised in London, but my childhood holidays were always in France or Italy. Uh, my mother's Australian-born, but of French descent. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, my, Italy has my heart. You know, my husband um, is uh, Nicola Pecorini. He is a cinematographer. He's Italian. Um, and we have a farmhouse um, in Tuscany, about an hour and a bit away from the Bay of Silence. Um, my own uncle, my father's side, moved to Santa Mediana in Tuscany in '73. So this, you know, so so the book actually spoke to me. You know, all these places, I kind of knew them. I, I guess I kind of knew these characters and this sort of cross-border world that they lived in, and uh, her bohemian side, uh, the artist side. You know, there's. Uh, you kind of know those people in North London. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he comes from a completely, completely different world. Um, and they, it's partly that. You know, he's the boots on the ground, simple guy, and um, doesn't really understand the secrets that are, you know, kind of embedded so deep in uh, her world. And so he's confronted by it. Um, but, you know, interestingly, the book is actually written from both points of view. And um, Lisa, um, uh, you know, I, I got in touch with her and um, we had mutual friends, actually, and we talked about it and I sort of said, I, I don't know, this, this, her book is so beautifully written. It really, really is. She's quite a magical realist when she writes this. And, of course, her analysis of... Um, mental health and she said she herself had had a kind of bit of a breakdown um, you know right there actually in the Bay of Silence after the birth of her son Alexander and um, you know a lot of it was almost like a fever dream Mm -hmm. Um, and I so love um, it kind of I, I just Don't Look Now really resonated with me as a film um, and so did The Vanishing. Mm-hmm. And those two films, somehow, um, I just thought if we could find, you know, I, we weren't seeing those movies anymore. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, and I just, I 
mourned them. I wanted a proper English language European film with complexity and I love noir and I just wanted to see could I try and tackle that um, and make it work and this book seemed to me with this central horrifying episode which demand you know which confronts you and you ask yourself what would I do if I was put in that position mm-hmm. um, I just thought I need to try and do something with it um, so she gave me her blessing to turn it actually into a thriller, more of a thriller, um, and while keeping the elements there, and uh, that's what I, I tried to do. Well, I think you succeeded handsomely, let me tell you, Carolyn. The thing, oh, thank you. And I, I ordered the book. I, after I saw the film, I did <laughs> go and I ordered the book, because it's very hard to find anymore. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, they. I don't know, perhaps they'll, um, you know, re-release it, as it were. It's an old book, um, and, uh, you know, who knows? Um, it'd be nice if they, if they could. I but, wish they uh, would. You might be a little surprised. <laughs> but... I definitely took, with Lisa's blessing, I, I definitely took a lot of, um, what's the word? Uh, Liberty? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a a movie. It ain't a book. But I love the movie so much, I have to read the book. So I'm still waiting for it to to arrive and dig into it. But you you just said something very interesting, that the fact that in the book, you've got both perspectives, both stories are being told. The film focuses on Will and... This yeah. is this is one of the greatest entrees that you have with this with the film and the screenplay is everything is done essentially quote unquote in real time with the audience. There's none of this seeing this off to the side and we know but he doesn't know as he learns we learn which really ratchets yeah. up the tension and I just love that. So I'm curious, how cha- how much of a challenge was that to essentially remove that other, that second point of view, and just shift it all into Will's? Um, yeah, it was, um, I really, really fought over that. But you see, the problem is, if you have a central character who essentially is, for want of a better word, schizophrenic. And as you know, in the book, everything is double. Sure. You know, the two bays are double, there's twins, there's, you know, and so um, if you, you have to have a character who you can rely on. And this is not, this was not the film for an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. like Girl on the Train, for example. Right. Uh, this was a film that if you're going to, try and do a noirish Hitchcock sort of looking back to the 70s and, and before, you do have to have a single protagonist who you can rely on, who is your, what I would call, yardstick of morality. And that's him. And you have to learn the story through his eyes. Otherwise, there's no suspense. Because the moment you get her side of things and, and then you go, well, is she reliable and then why? It, it just, it works in a book. But to me, a film is a three-act structure. Mm-hmm. It is, it does have to take you 
honest journey and you do have and I did want it from his eyes and then of course there was this moment where I thought oh god you know it's through a man's eyes and we're talking about you know sexual abuse and we're talking about things that traditionally women have always discussed and has been the women's realm and you know are we co-opting it to make it through a man's eyes but my position on this is men are part of this discussion Mm -hmm. and for women to say this is you know these things are our experience only and you aren't allowed to experience them because you are a victim is actually um harming the debate um and men are as much victims families and children are as much victims of the legacy of um sexual abuse Mm-hmm. and, you know, mental illness uh, as the victim because it radiates out and it affects everybody. So um, I actually thought that this would be a very interesting way as well to get men into the conversation. And what I'm finding is certainly Clay's totally um, responded to it. Uh, Brian, of course, I've known for a very long time. We, were, we worked together at the Royal Shakespeare Company in the 80s yeah. and he's always been... Um, such a friend and when I asked him you know I said there is this role would you be prepared to do it and he said yeah I'm, I'm, I'm here for you just just yeah you know <laughs> just get the movie ready and when you're ready you tell me <laughs> and uh, you know but having him attached as you know as a producer it's very important to have your actors attached Mm-hmm. Um, and in, and your director in order to raise the money it's chicken and egg all this stuff especially for an independent film that I was packaging in that you know independent way which is pre-sales and private investment and then mm-hmm. the soft money which is you know the grants and the tax credits and everything else um, and uh, you know taking it to market um, and so you know, all these building blocks and pieces of the puzzle have to be put in. Well, I love I love your thought process in having the man's perspective here because as I was watching the film, that's that's exactly what I was thinking is that, yeah, he's a victim. The children are victims. And the sensitivity that, that Kles brings to the role of Will the caring, the concern, I want to get her well. It's not this dismissive, abusive nature. It's very nurturing, very caring, yeah. very concerned. And that's something that nobody talks about is, yeah, there are male champions there, out there. Yeah. Um, is, yes, I think yes, I think so. So I hope if, if this adds to that conversation in a way, but also place is so damn good. And you know, when I saw him in the square, you know, it just he blew me away. Yeah. Um, you know, I just thought, my God, I you know, is there any way I can get this fantastic Danish actor? And I don't even think it's good. You know, the first thing is like, even this is fantastic. <laughs> um, and uh, Olga had already signed on. Brian had already signed on. Olga was wonderful. She just read it and said, "I love this." Um, I love noir, just let me know, um, and uh, how do we get the guy, you know? And, uh, you know, it's, it's never easy managing to get people uh, at a certain level, um, which you always have to, to make the sales agents happy. 
And of course, it's getting harder and harder because, of course, now so many people are going into television mm-hmm. and they're not free and trying to fit actors around schedules. It's almost impossible. And uh, I rather pursued place and I uh, went to Toronto and I saw him because they were releasing the square there. Um, and, uh, you know, I got a meeting and he read it. Um, and uh, he then said, well, I think you better see me on stage. <laughs> self effacing how, how do you know I'm going to be any good at this you've only seen me in one film you better come and see me in something else so I flew to Denmark um, and got on a train and went to this little um, place outside of Denmark and saw him in a play and uh, we caught the train back and went and had dinner with his wife and um, you know it was all great and then he said okay so how are we going to do this? Meanwhile, <laughs> 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 he was being offered everything under the sun. Um, and, uh, you know, they were trying to fit his schedule around all sorts of things. And he was such a champion. And he said, "I, you know, look, I promised Caroline. And, uh, you know, I'm going to do the film. So she told me it was April and, you know, I'm going to be there for April. And then I, I got a call from an absolutely wonderful uh, man called Dan Friedkin who was directing his first film, and he was also the producer of All the Money in the World. Mm-hmm. And he obviously worked with Ridley Scott, who I'd also worked with, of course, on White School. And he said, I'm calling you up. Ridley said you're nice. And I said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> so my love to Ridley said, because I have this film I need to play for. Uh, how do we make this work? And I said, I, oh, my God. I said, I finally got all the money. And you're telling me you want him on the same day that I want him? And he said, so what's this? I said, well, I'm going to lose my Chinese money if, if I can't do this. You know, they're like, that's their outside date. And he said, uh-huh. Okay, I think we better meet. So we did. He's an amazing guy. And he, you know, he flies his own plane and everything. And oh, my gosh. And we sat down and he said, all right, I'll help you if you help me. And uh, he, you know, uh, so Place starred in his movie, which is quite amazing, which is called The Last Vermeer that's been picked up by Sony. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. Which Dan directed as a first-time director. Um, and uh, I, and then he, you know, was gracious enough to, um, you know, help me out with the Chinese that walked. And, um, you know, so Place was able to then jump onto my movie immediately. Wow. <laughs> he was absolutely exhausted. Um, and that's how, so, so a lot of serendipitous moments, um, you know, wonderful, you know, Cheyenne Kane, who is a wonderful uh, investor, she became a proper producer on it because, you know, we needed to get to Italy and we didn't have enough to get to Italy. And, you know, there were so many, so many things that come together. And, you know, this is the thing. Everyone said, well, what do you mean you produced this? And you, people are used to, oh, yeah, you just get a credit. And I, I like, no, I'm afraid I really did. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're what I love calling a boots-on-the-ground producer. That's a compliment, absolute compliment, because that's what I call um, the, you know, the market. You know, I, when I remember when I first went to Pan, actually, Betsy Hamlin, who was the first investor who bought, buys um, movies for airlines, and she's my neighbor in Laurel Canyon, and uh, she um, had bought the dressmaker, and there we were. She was hanging out on set in uh, Australia um, with us all on the dressmaker, which, you know, was wonderful, Kate Winslet, and, oh, God, it was glass. 
And um, I asked her, I said, could you get one of your readers to read the script for me? Um, I just love a, a kind of industry view. And uh, so she did. And then she said, okay, I'm going to be your first investor. Um, oh. And, uh, you know, there you go. And so I had my first sale. And then when we went to Cannes, uh, which I would find really fun, very boots on the ground if you're doing the markets and the sales agents have a great camaraderie. Um, and uh, even though they're, you know, wildly competitive. Um, and I, I really fell in love with that side of the business. You know, I'm, I'm not crazy about, you know, the premieres and the openings and the red carpets. It's just all pretense. I just really loved this other side. And I thought, ah, this is, this is really, this is where it all starts. So d- um, does this mean we won't uh, does this mean we won't see you in front of the camera that now you're going to be the one the mover and shaker behind it? Well, you know, the, this is the irony. People ask me that, but in fact, um, you know, I say I thank God I still have my day job. Uh, so I've actually since we wrapped Bay made two features and no, three <laughs> Two features and two television series, um, and uh, have been also, you know, uh, post production and delivering the film at the same time. Um, and it's been really helpful because, you know, just when you need that little bit extra for a longer edit, or because, you know, you've had a foreign, foreign currency cash flow shortage, um, I was able to jump onto something and, uh, you know, be able to keep the you know home fires burning and mm-hmm. not have to go and beg for money from some horrible lender who was going to charge me way too much interest. <laughs> and there are plenty of them out there. Oh, yeah, there are. So, yeah, so, so yes, I'm very busy. I'm, I'm actually going back on uh, an Amazon film called Birds of Paradise, which... Um, we, you know, we're shut down on March 13th, mm-hmm. and in two weeks' time, I'll be back on set in COVID time Yay. Uh, with all the protocols to do another, the last two days, I'm saying the American ambassador to France um, in this film, um, and my daughter is a ballerina, and uh, so, yeah, and I'm actually a lovely female director, um, uh, Sarah... Uh, oh, God, hang on. I'm going to go blank now, aren't I? Um, uh, I'll get back. <laughs> Sarah Adina Smith. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, Sarah Adina Smith. But listen, I want to talk. I want to say something about you. When you talked about what you have, and I've, I've, I've read some other reviews of yours, you are amazing at how you get into the head of the director and the designer because you know, in, you you get what they're trying to do thematically and metaphorically. And when you talked about the room with the glass and mirror pieces and the fractured personalities. Oh, yeah. And that tiger picture in the background, which I thought no one will notice. He's, in, he's walking into the, well, the tiger's lair as it is. And you got it all. And I was like, wow. I'm amazing. I'm, I'm amazed that oh. you got that. And, you know, it, you know, loads of things, of course, are serendipity. Brian had hurt his back, and we actually had a whole choreographed scene that we were planning, which was much more of a big kind of shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, and he couldn't, because he moved his back, he couldn't. And I hurt his back. And he said, why don't I just stand behind those mirrors? 
And so um, they completely kind of re-orchestrated the whole um, scene in that respect. And it made it so, for me, a lot more dangerous. Absolutely. And more interesting. Yeah. Than, you know, your classic, okay, I'm now going to grab the gun from you and then it's going to skitter across to the other side and then, you know, Pierre will arrive and then suddenly she comes out of somewhere and, you know, you've got the stunt some guy standing around and uh, so it was all done in and so there were always so many little serendipitous moments on a film mm-hmm. that um, just happen by happenstance um, and thank you very much for liking that moment oh my pleasure thank you for making sure it got made you know I as a producer <laughs> as a producer on this film and actually when you were writing the script Carolyn did you envision, you know, many times writers, especially writer-directors, but many writers will actually put the notes in there as to what a scene should look like. Uh, they don't just do, okay, cut to bedroom. And they'll go into, okay, bedroom of six-month-old baby, giraffes, tigers, and lions on the walls, things like that. Do you get? Did you get descriptive in your writing, or did you wait and then um, come in with your producer no, hat? No, I think. Yeah, I mean, I really had to. Um, you know, Paula van der Erst and her longtime designer and her longtime DOP and script supervisor actually. They uh, they and uh, first AC, they all came as a team, all five of them. And she said, "Look, if I'm coming on board to do this, because I normally write and direct my own stuff, and so uh, what I would really like is if I can have my team, then I will feel comfortable." Um, and I said, "Well, of course." Um, and uh, so they have. You know, and Harry Amelan is a wonderful designer because, you know, we had very little money. We were, we went to three different countries, if you count, yeah, Scotland is another country, yep. you know. Um, we did a week in Italy and we started in the height of the, um, you know, this summer, uh, you know, it, you know, it, it was such a small budget in comparison to what it looks like. And they were amazing. And all of that production design really was, was Harry and Paula and Guido um, just sort of working it through themselves. Um, you know, they looked at a lot of Nick Rogue movies. They looked at, um, you know, bad timing specifically. Um, they looked at those sort of, you know, we, we did anamorphic, uh, which is really sad that, you know, obviously we're in COVID times so and mm-hmm. we don't get that, you know, opportunity for people to see it in the theaters but we actually do have some physical theaters that have booked it which is great um kansas and colorado so <laughs> they your readers are out there we can direct them to to be able to see it on the big screen because the big screen is quite amazing um with it because of the anamorphic um and the colors um and you know no i think um as a writer you write what you can to not get in the way and to give a real sense emotionally um, of, you know, place, time. Um, but uh, in terms of dictating what the color a wall should be or what should be on the wall, no, no mm-hmm. absolutely not, because then 
you know, you're directing it at that point. So mm. that was all them, and I'm so grateful. Yeah, and it's, was it difficult for you during the shoot? I mean, you do have a small role in the film. You've got to get a paycheck from somewhere. No, I didn't. <laughs> so. I came cheap. Well, free. Oh, God. I actually written. No, I had written that role for a guy because I actually wanted. I wanted Clay to have a friend who is a little bit icky. He was a bit of a sexist. And, you know, to, to settle kind of. Uh, that actually Will was really nice guy. Um, but in fact, what happened uh, was that Paula said, no, um, no, I, um, you know, I, please will you play the part? And uh, I, I think we need more women in, in the film. And I went, okay. Um, and uh, so she changed it to, um, you know, a woman. And, uh, you know, who wouldn't want to, do a couple of scenes with Clay. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, but, but I do look at it and I think, yeah, there's something about that performance that's very like someone just took her cans off her head and marched onto the set, <laughs> did the part and walked off <laughs> and put the cans back on again. And like, Could you just please not, not no, don't, don't put the camera anywhere near me. Thank you. I'll do what I have to do. So I, I'm slightly embarrassed. <laughs> My whole thing was, we need pace here, please. <laughs> I did every scene a double quick pace. <laughs> need pick it up, need pick it up. <laughs> well, you know, and that actually fits, that fits the character of Marsha. No, exactly. So that no was... nonsense. Uh, she had no truck with... Uh, uh, the Rosalind family at all. She was completely on Clay's side. She didn't like any of them. She thought they were, you know, so... <laughs> Last question. Yes. I'll make it a good one, Carolyn. Last question, then, is what did you learn about yourself as an actor, as a filmmaker, in writing and producing The Bay of Silence that you can now take forward into future projects, be it as an actor and how you will now interpret and look at scripts that come your way, or as a screenwriter and producer for future work? That's not a quick, short question. Uh, um, I think a bit of confidence, maybe. Um, that's the main thing. Um, and just the feeling that, you know, I've always, always wanted to write. And one day I, I really hoped that I'd be able to have a screenplay out there um, that people could see it. Um, and uh, maybe just uh, step up. I have a passion, I think, for the fusing of the artistic side and the more practical. And I think the more that they accept that actors who, let's face it, were always actor-managers who ran theatres and actors founded Hollywood, the more they will actually also allow us mm -hmm. to be a part of the equation, uh, then the better. And I do think it's happening, uh, mainly, I think, because of different ways that content is being distributed. And therefore, um, the artists are being allowed uh, more leeway. And uh, I think that is a good thing. Carolyn, this has been such a joy talking to you today. 
Oh my God. You know, I, I, I just so told you've got it. You totally got it. Um, and, uh, that you have my heart for that. I'm, I'm sending you a medal. <laughs> oh, well, I will wear it with great pride. And that was Carolyn Goodall. As we talked about the Bay of Silence, her career, how all of her past comes into play in her decision to write the script, to do the adaptation of the Bay of Silence, uh, how it aided her in casting. But then, she also talked a little bit about some of the other issues wearing her producer's hat for this film, such as dealing with investors, uh, foreign investors, with foreign exchange currency issues. Um, little things that, that, you know, a lot of filmmakers, they don't think about. Um, and it falls to the producer. And here, Carolyn, uh, to her credit, she, you know, helmed, uh, she was behind, the driving force behind... Uh, getting this film made and I can't recommend it highly enough. It is spectacular. And, you know, as a side note, you know, Clace Bang, he is also, they have re-released the Burnt Orange Heresy, which I talked about earlier in the year, uh, stars Clace. It stars <clears throat> Elizabeth Debicki, who was just announced will be playing Princess Diana in the crown. Also Donald Sutherland, Mick Jagger, uh, so you can you can see two generations of Jaggers out right now, too. You can see Mick in The Burnt Orange Heresy, and you can see his son in The Outpost. Um, but definitely, The Bay of Silence, absolutely spectacular film. And now, let us move on without any further ado to the man who's got the power, Matson Tomlin. As I said, there are no Batman spoilers but Matson again, he's a lot of fun. He's young. He's effervescent. He is vibrant, very passionate, and he loves screenwriting. So take a listen to Matson Tomlin talk about Project Power. Hey, Matson. Hey, how are you? Well, after watching Project Power, I'm very excited to be talking with you. Oh, rad. Love that. I love this movie oh you're so sweet thank you so much number one i had fun watching it the action is incredible it looks fabulous uh, michael simmons cinematography is exquisite oh, he's, he's such a pro he's, he's so cool blew my mind the vfx work is incredible i could find nothing wrong with this film but for the fact that it ended Oh, that's great. I love that. Thank you for saying that. This is a superhero movie unlike any superhero movie we've seen before. What you do, it's just everyday guys. Yeah. And um, yeah. who, they're doing their utmost. And even this whole concept, Madsen, I just think it is so unique in that you take a pill, you have the power... And you don't know what your power is going to be until the first time you take this pill. But whatever it is, it exploits whatever is innately within you. It can enhance yeah. or exploit. So you could be the devil incarnate walking walking the earth and take this pill and you're going to explode and you're going to be vaporized. You're going to be gone. We're done with you. Pure, you pure evil goes away. 
But then you get somebody who uh, who is one of the one of the cool scenes is the subject the display presentation and the girl takes it and I yeah. gotta say the dialogue's hilarious because somebody yells ooh it's like frozen um, <laughs> and she's freezing like Elsa but it basically is saying okay she's got she's a cold person she's got a cold heart everything about her uh, you've got people that they're chameleons such as Newt, and his, you know, he change skin can change and morph, so you can't really trust what you're seeing or who that is. This right. is so creative, Madsen. Where, where did you come up with this concept? Man, and it's, and that's, everything you just said is so, <laughs> very, very kind. Thank you, thank you. Um, the, the, the concept. You know, it's, who who knows where these things really come from? I, I I was going through the notes in my phone a couple of nights ago and found the the July 2016 kind of first kernel of you know you take a pill gives you superpowers and that to me just just that little idea you know we've seen versions of that and you know there's there's the whole super soldier thing that mm-hmm. you see in the Marvel movies so you know it's it's not like it's the newest thing ever, but this idea that you don't know what's going to happen, this yeah. idea that you don't know what you're going to get, that to me was when I felt like, oh, there's there's a movie here, and, and that feels... I, I couldn't quite point to one thing that had totally done that. And, you know, there's, there's the obvious drug metaphor of just like, you know, you, you can have a good high, you can have a bad high, like that stuff happens. And so the, the kind of fear around would you or would you not take it? And I think that all movies, if they have that kind of great, compelling question, you know, would, would you take it? Would you risk it? You know, what if you have a bad power? Like, it just kind of gets your mind racing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that was kind of the, the first thing of just that concept. And then I, I discovered kind of quickly, there are a lot of bad versions of the movie. There's a lot of versions where you know, you kind of roll your eyes and go, okay, it's it's all about the powers and, and that's fine, but that gets old quickly. And it, it for me was discovering Robin, was discovering this character mm-hmm. and realizing that I wanted to make her the heart of the movie and to go on this journey. Uh, that, that felt like a point of view that I, I wasn't seeing in, in, in other movies. And uh, from, from from Robin, then it was just filling out the rest of the characters and discovering art and discovering Frank. And then writing the actual script, the, that, that first draft that ended up selling to Netflix, it, it was extremely, extremely quick. You know, I, I started working on the actual draft in, in January of 2017. By the summer, we had producers and directors on. And then by October, we had sold it to Netflix and, and they were really serious about making it. So it... In screenwriting time, that's no time at all to, to in 10 months, go from an yeah. idea to you have a movie and it's going. Yeah. I'm curious, because of the powers that we see unfold in the film, and because they are, it, it basically, they're, they're akin to whoever you are as a person, but each one of them is also rooted organically. You know, you've got, you know, the whole idea of, you know, bursting into flames and that superheated steam idea. I've read about that in science. You've got, you know, the effects of photosynthesis 
that bring that generate and bring things back to life that yeah. heal the wolverine frog i love the whole idea you know the wolverine frog is one of the coolest things and i think it's a relatively new amphibian that was discovered and was actually named that because of the character of wolverine oh funny but to actually see that and have somebody whose bone his arms actually break and turn into claws and go stabbing people you know, all of this, did you do any kind of research for these superpowers that are organic and rooted to nature? Yeah, definitely. You know, the the original script, it, I, there was always the, you know, the, the pill brings out this innateness in you. Yeah. But it wasn't until we were, you know, Netflix had bought the movie and Henry and Rel and I were, were just working on really defining the mythology and really ironing everything out that, that they came up with, you know, what if we go down this rabbit hole of nature and animals? Like there's kind of something there. And I think that for them, it started off with, with uh, you know, the, the, the character that, that his skin color changes and, he, you know, in, in the script, he was invisible. But we all kind of felt like, well, we've seen invisible people and, you know, some of it's been done well, some of it hasn't. And it just felt like there's a way to make that fresh. And then we discovered, you know, these, these, these fish and these octopi that are at the bottom of the ocean who can go completely invisible. Mm-hmm. And then when they move, there's just this, this strange moray effect of, yes. of you know, as, as they start to figure out, okay, I've changed, so where am I now? And it's this ripple that kind of happens. And it's real. Like, that's a real thing. And so I think that that was the first one that we saw and went, wait, there's a lot more we can do here. And so then it was just weeks and weeks of, of the three of us, Henry, Rel, and I just texting and and every day, you know, somebody would find a new animal superpower and send it to the group. And there, there's so many that, that didn't make it in this film. So I, I, I hope there's a sequel for a lot of reasons, but, but one of the reasons is because there's just a lot, a lot more cool stuff to do. But now I got to ask, when you and Henry and Rel were sitting down coming up with all these really cool ideas, did any of you stop to think how... It, anyone would be able to, to execute this and actually bring it to life on screen short you know short of going full-on CGI yeah. because this is another element of this film and it follows through on the very concept and nature of of the power and of nature and and what is innate is a lot of this stuff is being done very practically from a filmmaking yeah. standpoint when the, the script had always been written with this this intention of of you know you look at all the superpowers and you ask yourself what if this was real mm-hmm. and one of the first scenes that I, I wrote was, was was Newt in the apartment where he he you know goes flame on and bursts into flame and the obvious reference for that is is Johnny Storm from the Fantastic Four sure and looking at that character. There weren't many examples of Johnny Storm being inside, sitting on a couch, and then flaming on, and then the couch catches on fire, and then the building burns down. It's not its not really what you associate with what happens around the human torch. And just thinking about the reality of, oh, if, if I were just standing in my house right now, and then I flame on, like, my house would burn down. That would be it. My skin would be all burned up and mm-hmm. messed up. And so 
just approaching every single power like that, you know, the nice thing about being the writer is that I, I don't have to worry that much about how it's going to get pulled off as long as it works on screen. Uh, so Henry and Rel, I'm sure every day we're, we're looking at each other going, oh man, we've got a lot to figure out here. Uh, if I were when looking at a script with a lot of, uh, with these descriptive things there about what this, what this is supposed to do, I'd be scratching my head, I'd be cursing you out and going, oh my God, how am I going to do this? The first conversation that I had with those guys, they they were talking about the moment where, where Frank gets, gets shot in the face. Uh -huh. and that was described really vividly in the script as a slow motion moment and that, you know, you, you see the, 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 the blood vessels in his eyes exploding. You know, you see all of this granular detail. And the guys were so into that and just really saying, like, we want to try to figure out how to do that in a real way. And, like, that's a great example where they, that, that day they go up to Joseph Gordon-Levitt and go, okay, we're going to shoot you in the face with an air cannon. And that's what, that's what you're seeing, you know, the, the, the bullet and the flame, like, all of that is CGI. Yeah. On set that day, it's like his face is moving like that. He, he, he was getting buzzed. Of course, Joe is always up for anything. Yeah, yeah, man, that guy's incredible. I love him. So the whole essence of this, and then at the heart of it, and, and of course I love that you also carry this through, that Robin, in a very cool moment uh, where she's with Jamie Foxx's character of art, they wind up at the veterinary hospital where her mother works. So yeah. here again, so to fight infection, she gives him pills and... But it all goes back to nature and how everything is integrated. And what a lot of, you know, people are going to realize, anybody with a pet is going to realize, hey, your dog gets the same medicine you get, just in a smaller right. dose. So right. <laughs> <laughs> you carry this through from beginning to end, this whole idea of nature, the idea that we've got a lot of rain, because this essentially happens, what, over the course of 36 hours, maybe 48 yeah, hours? Yeah, it's a crazy night. And, you know, there's torrential rain, almost like a baptismal, cleanse, possibly cleansing the area of this, this pill that obviously the government and, and other entities want to use for yeah. not-so-nice purposes. But... It all goes back to the glue of this film, and that glue is Robin and Dominique Fishback's amazing performance. She's the one that holds. She brings Joe's character of Frank and Jamie's character of Art. She's the one that brings them together. Okay. Uh, and But what you stress with her is she has a power that nobody else has, and that's the power of herself. And you, you stress this throughout the film, through Jamie's character of art, about finding the power within you, which yeah. I think is one of the most incredible messages to be putting out there, especially well, to the like, audience. This idea that it's, it's you, that it's your voice, and that, yeah. you know, the power of words, like that, that was always extremely important and, and inherent in the DNA of, you know, the, the movie is not a musical, obviously, but... I, I I love rap for this reason yes. of just you know you're you're using your body and and your soul in this really visceral raw way and to see that played out through a character where that's her power that that to me felt like you know, there's, there's 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 something with real heart there that I that I needed to chase. 
Yeah. That is the most beautiful element of this film. And in today's world, Matson, it is the most perfect thing to be putting out. That message. And for the audience, because this, I think, this will appeal to every age group. But I think your younger audience, your teens are going to go crazy for this film. Teenagers are going to go nuts for this film. I hope so. I hope so. I've, I've been doing this exercise of just thinking what, you know, trying to, I'm so deep in this movie, they're just trying to look at it as if I don't know anything about it. It's really hard to do. And the other day I was thinking along the lines you're talking about right now of just, man, if I were like 13 years old and this movie was coming out, it, it would just blow my mind. And I, I, I think that that's, you know, that's fun. I hope that that's the case. Yeah, I mean, as I'm watching it, uh, that's I kept thinking, oh my god, teens are going to go nuts. They're going to go nuts watching this. Let's hope. Let's and, hope. You know, and you also maintain the whole idea of, okay, even though this pill may give people power, and sometimes that power is a good thing, it's the whole "just say no to drugs" message is still in there too. Sure, <laughs> sure, yeah. You really covered all the bases with this film, Matt. Really, uh, very well. Was it more challenging for you as a writer to come up with Robin and her story as well as Art and his story with his daughter or developing each of the, the bad guys in this film? Man, I, I think that the, the, the central characters were easy because you when you're a writer, you try to put parts of yourself in them. And so there are pieces of art that are very personal to me. There, there are a lot more pieces of Robin that are very personal and, and autobiographical to me and things that I've gone through. Uh, obviously not everything. It's not a one-to-one, but you, you pour a lot of your heart into that. With, with the villains, you know, it's, it's tougher. You know, you, you have to figure out how to do something a little bit different, how to make it so that it doesn't fall into cliche how does it how do you keep away so that it feels fresh and new and relevant to this movie but can still deliver on you know, the kind of vibe and mode that a big blockbuster film has to be so that that for me was was a tricky one and just trying to strike that balance do you ha- out of your bad guys here out of your villains do you have a favorite one? Oh man I, I think that for me it's, it's probably Newt. It's probably Machine Gun Kelly. Just just you know the, the the way that he performed, you know his kind of franticness in the beginning. It it really tells the story where I, I understand who this guy is and what his life has been like that week. It's it, it, it's so kind of kind of wonderfully captured where I feel like I'm seeing a much much bigger world in a very short amount of time. So I, I just I love those moments with with him and Jamie at the door and then. Jamie going into the house and, and starting a fight. Mm-hmm. And he does that so well. Oh, yeah. He yeah. <laughs> the, the dialogue is, it's very contemporary. It's very conversational. It's very in the moment. How precious are you with the words on the page? When it came time to shooting, did and things... Did things get changed? Did they? Did anybody ad-lib? Were you on set while shooting was taking place? Yeah, I was on set for for a bunch, not the whole time. Um, things always change, you know. Things the the actors are the ones that have to make it real. And so something that that looks good on paper, it might turn out to be word salad. There might be a way to to say it more efficiently. 
I think that with all of these actors, they're they're all so good. They're such pros that you know it, it the the rhythm tended to be that they would you know would shoot what was written and and then they'd go have fun with it. And the, the movie is a nice blend, but the way I write tries to be as conversational as possible. Like you want people to feel like they're real people. And so it was already starting off from a, a baseline where it was encouraging the actors to make it their own. Very conversational, but in different in different demographic groupings too. We see sure. we see Robin talking one way in school and with her friends who are trying to encourage her to rap for the teacher. Uh, we see her talking another way with her mother. You see Frank take on different personas as a cop, yeah. trying to fit in, and it it's all very effortless, Manson. Um, so I really like that conversationalism, but the fact that it suits the particular demographic that's happening at that moment. I think that the key for me is that none of us are just one person. Mm -hmm. You know, within us, we all have so many people and. The way that we talk to our parents is completely different from the way that we talk to our spouse, which is completely different from the way that we talk to the guy that just rear-ended you on the 405. <laughs> and so I think that just, like, acknowledging that and then knowing, okay, I have to really feel what the soul of these characters are, but they also go into completely different modes. And I think a really good example of that is the art that talks to Robin when she's in the trunk, mm -hmm. that's an art of one mode. And then yeah. the art that talks to her as a vet, the same guy, same actor, has all of the same objectives, and yet there's a different part of him that's coming out yeah. right now. So I, I really appreciate you saying that. That makes me feel so good. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I just love that. Nothing is ever forced. Nothing is ever stilted. And it, it fits the particular situation and or the demo for the people that are that are that are doing the talking. Really, really, really appreciate that. Now, ah, uh, I mean, how'd you luck out your first your first screenplay, and here you end up with Jamie Fox, with Joseph Gordon-Levitt, you know, Rodrigo Santoro, Machine Gun Kelly. You know, what's the secret here? What's the secret? I have no idea. I, I've been asking myself that, too, but I'd like for it to happen some more. Then you jump from this. You've got Little Fish that will be coming out at some point. And then, of course, the Batman. Yeah, that guy. Not too slouchy, Madsen. I'm trying here. I'm trying. You know, they, they, they are all very different canvases. And Power is the, 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 the big, fun, loud action movie that is not based on anything and, and you know people are hopefully going to discover and embrace uh, Batman is, is the legacy where that it's, it's Batman years old and, <laughs> and has all of these expectations and you know Little Fish I'm, I'm so excited for that that movie to come out thank you for mentioning it just because it, it that's a heartbreaker and you know I, I again I, I said it already which is you know a benchmark where you can get people to really feel something and get people to cry. And, you know, Little Fish, I'm, I'm really excited for it to see the light of day because it is so different from, you know, what the target is of these other two movies. And it, it, it's my writing in a completely different vein. Well, I know you can't tell me anything about the Batman, but can you tell me something about Little Fish? Because it doesn't have that high profile, high profile cloaked in secrecy aspect to it. 
know, Little Fish is a love story that's set during a pandemic, uh, <laughs> where where the, the pandemic, the disease that's going around the world is that people are getting sick and they're losing their memories. And it's, it's based on a, a great short story by Asia Gable. And when we were making the movie, when the movie was in post-production, there were all of these conversations about how much of this pandemic stuff should we put in the movie? You know, do we need these scenes with the National Guard? Do we need these scenes with borders closing? All of this stuff. And it, it felt like, you know, it was, it was very important to me. It was very important to Chad Hardigan, the director, to get that stuff in. And other people felt like, does it just take you out of the movie? Um, it all got in. And now, you know, <laughs> it was supposed to premiere at Tribeca and it was postponed because of a pandemic. And so now suddenly... A movie that did at one point feel very, very genre feels a lot less genre at this yeah. point because we're living it. Oh, my God. Well, now, what have you been doing during the pandemic with everybody being on lockdown? Has Have you been working on new scripts, just focusing on seeing the Project Power gets out the door? What's this been like for you? I know I've talked to some writers, and they have been essentially being on lockdown it's paralyzed them it has paralyzed their creativity and they've written nothing which surprised me so i'm curious what's been happening with you in terms of your creative juices here my coping mechanism for any stressful situation is to write so i have written seven scripts since march that's all just seven (laughs) and uh it's not healthy. It's not, it's not something to be proud of in, in this case because it really is, oh, I'm just going to go into fantasy land here. And, you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I have that because as we are on this lockdown and, and, and everybody's trying to stay safe, you know, I feel like I am transported to different worlds because I just, you know, sit down at my keyboard and, and start working, which, which sounds like a totally, you know, cockamamie thing to say, but there, there is something kind of true about it where you get into these modes of with being with these characters who aren't real and these places that aren't real and you have a full emotional experience. And so I've, I've really been leaning on my ability to do that to keep me from going completely insane. Yeah, I know. I think we're all on borderline insanity right now. Here you are. You're still a relative newcomer in the big world of, yeah. of filmmaking. But what is the gift? What is the gift that that writing that this project in particular project power what have you learned about yourself in the process of making this film and the gift that is given you that you can now take forward with more than just the batman into future projects learning how to listen when when i sold the script as as a baby writer uh it was my script and, and I had a lot of opinions on it and it was going to be a certain way. And then once it gets sold, once it's really becoming a movie, you know, the, the credits has 400 people listed. Wow. I'm one of them. And then there are 399 others. And all of those people in their corner, like they have their say and they are all important in, in getting the movie made. And so this being my first one and it, and it being at this incredibly large scale, which is, is extremely unusual for, mm-hmm. for a first film. Uh, the, the thing that I learned is, you know, how to open myself up to the process and let other people help you make a great movie. And that was Madsen Tomlin, 
someone who certainly does have the power with him. Um, two great films, two great screenwriters uh, today. A lot of interesting information from both of them on their processes on filmmaking, especially with Carolyn and a lot of those little tidbits for producers and a lot of you indie filmmakers to think about and uh, fret about uh, as you work on budgeting and things like that. But, of course, we ran over. That is all the time we have today. Pam's in there making an ugly face. I don't know why. Uh, but... Um, Another great, another great film that is out. Oh, I can't write that. You should all go see is Unhinged. Russell Crowe. Wow, wow, wow. Derek Bort uh, directed. Incredible. Crowe is another one who is on a roll this year. Um, but that is all the time we have today. Next week we're going to start taking a look at some films that will be at the virtual Dances with Films Film Festival. And uh, next week should be one about vampire slayers. So you all know I'm going to be really happy talking to the filmmakers about that one. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm -hmm.